Take out your Bible, if you would, and open it to Luke chapter 24. We're in verses 36 to 43, and we are coming to the end of our two-year journey, a little bit more than two-year journey through the gospel of Luke, and picking up where Lloyd left off last week on Resurrection Sunday. This is the end of the day on Sunday, actually late in the night, Sunday night, where Jesus makes the last of his appearances to his disciples that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And this has been a busy day. Uh, You may remember that the, the women, this is the morning, the women get up early to go to the tomb. They've prepared spices for the body. They go to the tomb only to find the stone rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus is no longer there. They have this encounter with two angels. The angels encourage them to remember. To remember what? To remember what what Jesus had said to them, that he would suffer at the hands of sinners, that he would die, that on the third day he would rise again. The women remember. They run back to the others to report all that they have seen and heard. And Peter hears it. He runs to the tomb only to find the same thing. The, The tomb is empty, only the linen claws that were used in burial are still laying in the tomb. And, and then we have this encounter on the road to Emmaus where these two men, Cleopas and one other, disciples of Jesus Christ, are, are walking the road to Emmaus. They're talking about all these things, all that has happened. And, and Jesus appears and he walks with them. And he explains the scriptures to them. He explains Moses and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. Why does he explain the scriptures, all of the Old Testament to them? Well, that's what Lloyd did that last week. It's because all of the themes and events and stories in the Old Testament, they all point to Jesus himself. And so he helps them to see and explain the scriptures. Their eyes are opened over dinner with Jesus. They recognize him for who he is. Jesus disappears and they run the seven mile journey back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night to tell the others what they've seen and experienced. John chapter 20 tells us that the disciples are gathered together late on this Sunday evening. They're gathered together in a room in Jerusalem. These are the 11 plus several others and they're gathered together there and the doors are shut and locked to the place. They're hiding. They're fearful of the Jewish religious leaders. In the room, the emotions are running high. We'll see that. They're, the emotions are running high. They, they're discussing all that has happened. They're trying to figure it out. These two come back from Emmaus. They knock on the door. They let them in. They close and relock the door. And these two from Emmaus begin to explain all that happened on the road and in Emmaus. And that's where we pick up our text for today. They're describing what has happened. Look at it with me in verse 36. While they, those are the two disciples from Emmaus, were telling these things, he himself, there's Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of fish. He took it and he ate it before them. Now, when we come to the Gospel of Luke, 
every time we open it, we have to remember Luke's purpose for writing. See, his purpose, it frames everything. What's Luke's purpose for writing? We say this almost every week. All the way back in chapter 1, Luke says, I write that you might know the exact truth about Jesus Christ. That word there means that you might know for sure who Jesus is, what he did, with certainty, without a doubt. Well, what is it in this section that Luke wants us to know for sure about Jesus? Well, certainly it's, it's that the resurrection happened. That, that's for sure, right? He, he's lining up eyewitness accounts to the resurrected Jesus Christ. S- certainly that's true. And this right here, th- this is the apex with all of them there. Th- this is the apex of those resurrection appearances. Everything that Jesus has said, everything that he's promised, e- everything that he has prophesied, all of it is validated. All of it's substantiated. All of it is proven in his real, literal appearance to all of them in this moment. Certainly, Luke wants us to understand that the resurrection is for sure. But Luke goes beyond that. In fact, he builds on that. He also wants us to know for sure that Jesus' resurrection is a bodily resurrection. Jesus Christ is physically raised from the dead. You see, his followers are having a hard time understanding the meaning of the resurrection. And it's not enough to say that Jesus' body, his bones are in a box somewhere as long as his spirit is alive. Not enough to say that. Of course, Jesus could have done that. He could have returned to heaven without a body. His spirit could have ascended into the clouds. Still would have been glorious, I'm sure. But that's not what he does. That, that's not true. No, he puts on a body. He puts on a resurrected body. And I think when we're done today, you'll understand why he puts on a body. And my hope is that all of us will be very, very glad that he did. One comment before we dive in here a little bit deeper. One of the reasons that that we teach the way we do, section by section, um, verse by verse, is so that we will get the whole counsel of God's Word, all of it. Not just the parts we like, not just the parts that we're comfortable with. And this section here today, I, I just want you to know this on the front end, this is a heavy dose of theology. It is. It's, it's complex, it's complicated, and it's good for the soul. Why? Because it's in here. That's why. And it's because we, it's where we are today. That's why. See, everything recorded in here is good and profitable for you and me. And so we attack it with confidence, trusting the Spirit of God who inspired Luke to record it for us will inspire us as we study it as well. That's why we teach the way that we do. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to make one overarching observation about Jesus' resurrected body and unpack it in the text. We'll do that first. Then I want to talk about two reasons why bodily resurrection is so important. That's the heavy theology part. We'll do that in the middle. And then we'll talk about how this, how something like this could apply to our lives today. And I think that'll be obvious to us as we get there. Okay, so one observation, two reasons, one application. Here we go. Here's the observation. Jesus' new body is and it isn't like the old one. It is and it isn't. 
I don't know any other way to, to say it. Both things are true. It's like the old one in that it has the same physical characteristics. For example, when, when he stood in their midst, they could see him. They saw him. He was recognizable to them. And Jesus looked like Jesus. Yet, the disciples were startled. They were troubled. They were frightened. They, they thought they were seeing a spirit. Why? Well, it's not because it didn't look like him. It's because it did look like him, and they weren't sure how Jesus had just appeared in their midst. They're, they're frightened because Jesus didn't use the front door, right? You see, that, that would freak me out. I'm at home one night, it's late at night, turning the lights off, close the garage door, lock up the house, getting a glass of water in the kitchen, getting ready to go to bed, and whoosh, there's Jesus just chilling by the fridge. That'd freak me out, right? That would freak me out. I hope it would freak you out. It's like, you Jesus? Yeah, man, Jesus, you got anything to eat? What in the world is going on here? You imagine that conversation with your spouse, like, Hillary, I'm not sure, but you might need to go in the kitchen. I think Jesus is, this is unbelievable. See, now, now of course, we're talking about how Jesus' resurrected body is, is different than his old one. It's not like his old one. Sure, it has the same physical characteristics, but listen, it's not bound by them. It's not bound by time and space. It transcends time and space. So he appears on the road to Emmaus. He, he disappears from dinner in Emmaus. He appears to the disciples in Jerusalem. He, he will ascend into heaven. And Jesus' resurrected body, it's, it's not bound by time and space, but, but it's also not a spirit either, okay? This is the tension we hold. It's not immaterial either. Now, what does he say to them when they thought he was a spirit? The word there means ghost. It's the same word that, um, that they use in the boat, the disciples use in the boat when Jesus is walking to them on the water. Peter tries to walk out to him. They first, they think it's a ghost. They think it's a spirit. They recognize it as Jesus, but it doesn't make any sense that he's walking on the water. It doesn't make any sense that he's come through the wall. He must be a spirit. What does Jesus say to them? Here's what he says, verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Love that phrase. This, this is me. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus appeals to their physical senses to validate his physical attributes. Use your ears, hear my voice. Use your sense of touch and feel my my flesh and my bones. See my hands and my feet. We're going to talk about this more in just a minute, but why would Jesus say, see my hands and my feet? Because when they look at his hands and his feet, they can see the imprints of the nail holes that were in them. And that's why, see, Jesus' new body, it carries the physical markings of the old body. It does. It, it, it's connected to. You, you saw the nails go in here. See for yourself. Touch my hands and my feet. Ch- check it out. And, and then, of course, he, he eats a piece of fish. Nothing more basic to the physical reality of the human body than eating food. And significant in the Jewish culture because these, these Jewish disciples, followers of Jesus, of course, now, but they'd grown up in the 
Jewish religious system. And they knew, they knew this. They knew that the, the one difference, the one major difference between angels and humans, between spirits and humans, was, was that spirits didn't eat. They knew this from the religious upbringing. Jesus knew this about them, and so Jesus shares a meal with them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about this, this new resurrected body, and he says this, It is sown a perishable body, that's the one we have now, raised an imperishable body, sown in dishonor, certainly know that to be true of Jesus in his death, it's raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Here's the connection between the two. Last thing Paul says is this, if there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual or a supernatural body. Both things are true. What's similar is that it's recognizable to us. It has flesh and bones, physical characteristics. What's different is that it is imperishable. It's eternal. It will never again experience the effects of sin and death. No decay, no aging. It won't get sick. It won't fall apart. It is a glorified but yet still physical body. Okay? How are we doing? Everybody tracking so far? We okay here? We're going good. Okay, let's talk about why. Here's why. Why is the bodily resurrection of Jesus so important? Why was it important for him to show up that way for his disciples? Why does Luke want us to know it for sure? Well, two reasons here from the text. This is the first. Bodily resurrection is the only way that sin can be fully defeated and the penalty for sin fully satisfied. I'm going to say that again, then I'll unpack it. Bodily resurrection is the only way that sin can be fully defeated and the penalty for sin fully satisfied. I want you to track with me here, and I'm going to show you this as best I can so that we can see it. If you can't see this very well, I'm going to explain it as I go, so we'll do our best. Adam, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, throughout the Old Testament, Romans, we go to Romans chapter 6, lots of places in Romans, throughout the New Testament, God makes it very clear to us that there is a penalty for sin. We, we know this. First couple of points here are just basic. We know this. What, what's the penalty for sin? You tell me. Death. Penalty for sin is death. It's Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. There is none righteous, no, not even one. All of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty. It's physical death. We don't live forever. And it's spiritual death. Our sin separates us from God. Now, not only do we have a sin problem, but God also sent a solution to that problem. This is easy. God sent a remedy to that problem. Who came to take care of the problem for sin of which the penalty is death? Who is that? Come on. Who is it? Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus Christ. And how does he pay the penalty for sin? How does he do that? We've spent the last two months on it. How does he do it? By dying, right? By dying, yeah. Now, here's what I'm introducing today. This is the new part. I'm suggesting that the only way that we can know for sure 
only way that we can know for sure that the penalty has been fully satisfied is by the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can know for sure that the penalty has been fully paid, that God is fully satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why? Here's why. Because if the penalty for sin is death, then as long as Jesus is dead, the penalty is still being paid. You see, if, if God is still in the tomb, if Jesus Christ is still in the grave, then the penalty is still being paid. Let me, let me see if I can get at it like this. I know not everyone in here follows hockey, but I, th- I think you can get this. When one of our national predators commits an infraction, does something that are not allowed by the rules of hockey, intentional or unintentional, he gets a penalty. He's sent to the penalty box. Penalty box, small little glass area between the benches. There's an official in there, and the player, game goes on, player stays in the penalty box for the duration of the penalty. Depending on the infraction, it's typically either two or four minutes. When does that player come back out on the ice and join his team? When the penalty's been paid. When the two minutes is up. See, that's when he comes back out onto the ice. The penalty has been satisfied. If the penalty for sin is death, then Jesus stays dead until the penalty has been paid. And when it's been paid, He returns to life. He's alive, proving that it has been satisfied. The penalty's been satisfied. Paul says it this way. He says this, Jesus was put to death for our sins and raised for our justification. What's justification? Justification just simply means that we are declared not guilty before God. When are we declared not guilty before God? When Jesus is raised from the grave. That's what Paul says. Our friend the theologian Wayne Grudem writes it this way. By raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying that he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins. That his work was completed and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. Why? Because there was no penalty left to pay. And it's not just the resurrection of his spirit. It's the resurrection of his body. Why why would that be true? Because Adam sinned in a body. And so do we. That's why Jesus Christ came to earth and took on a body in the first place. And it's certainly the reason that Jesus Christ would take on a resurrected body when he returns to life from the grave. You see, the the disciples who are doubting and disbelieving and despairing, they needed to see him. They needed to know it was him. His body is the visible proof. And if he had not risen bodily, we who are his, we would not rise either. But get this, because he did, we too will receive a new glorified body. And that's the second reason that bodily resurrection is so important. It's important because it's your future. 
It's important because you're going to get one. That, that's pretty stinking awesome. It really is. No sickness, no chronic pain, no illness, no weakness, no decay, no getting old, no balding, no cavities, no seasonal allergies. I'm just going to be going around heaven just snorting up pollen. No problem at all. Just totally different than the way I feel right now, right? It's going to be unbelievable, glorified, transformed body. And it'll be like the old one too. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first of the resurrected bodies. He's a prototype for us. That first fruits is a metaphor from agriculture. It's, it's like this. Just as the first fruits of the ripening crop will show what the rest of the harvest will be like, well, Jesus as the first fruits shows what our resurrection bodies will be like. And like Jesus, there will be a physical continuity between who we are today and what we will be. Like Jesus, we will be recognizable. We will clearly resemble what we've got now. It's like, oh boy, you know, there goes my hope for showing up in heaven looking like Brad Pitt. Not going to happen. This is it. This is clearly, I, I'm going to look like me. And you're going to look like you. Which is why the Bible talks about the importance of taking care of our bodies now. As best that we can. Knowing that there's some things that we cannot control. Knowing that it won't be perfect. But we take that seriously. You see, what God's saying here is the same thing he said in Genesis. That there is only one of you indescribable value in how God made you original. God said, looked at you when he made you. That right there is very good. God's most prized creation. Psalmist writes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Just simply means this. God paid attention to the detail of you. Nobody on earth, anywhere ever that looks, talks, or acts, or walks like you. You're special. You're unique. So good, in fact, that he's going to restore you. He was going to restore you, that which he made original, so that you can be you for all of eternity. Can you hear the incredible value in that? There are a few young people in the room. I want you to look up at here just for a minute. You know, when we, when we stand up here and we say, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. When your parents look at you and go, just I, don't worry about that. It doesn't matter what they say about you, what they think of you. Don't worry about that. This is why. It's because the creator God of the universe looks down at you and he goes, whoa, wow. Look at him. He's incredible. Look at her. She's remarkable. Jason, that dude, he's got it. That guy is so cool. Sarah, that girl, she's gorgeous. She absolutely has what it takes. And God's going to take that. He's going to restore that. He's going to make it into a new imperishable body. He's going to place you in a new heaven and a new earth. And you will be the only one of you there. See, that's indescribable value. 
And that, men and women, is why we're so glad that Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. He will carry a body for the rest of his life, which places such value on how God created us with a body. Let's talk about application. I I want to take this theological truth, and I want to think about it in today's terms. How do we take and apply it? And I just start here. One, One of the things that I love about this passage is that the disciples are in process. They're in process. They hadn't fully bought in yet. It's like they recognize Jesus, but they don't know it's him for sure. Their belief is in process. We, I could describe it this way, if you could imagine just for a minute, a, a continuum of belief, just kind of a line up here in, in front of you. On this end, it's like this is disbelief. They've moved off disbelief, but, but they're not all the way over here yet to let's go tell the world about it, right? They're, they're just in process. Look at verse 41 just for a minute. Here's Jesus. He's showing them his hands and his feet, and verse 41 says, they still could not believe it, still could not believe it. Why? Well, now it's because of their joy and amazement. Well, what is that? What does it mean that they could not believe for joy? We have a phrase for this. It's when something is too good to be true, right? That, that's our phrase, like, pinch me. Is this really happening? I, I can't believe it. Disciples have no category for this. They've never seen this. They don't expect this to be true. Remember that they're hopeless. And now it's dawning on them, this is actually the risen Christ. Could it really be? I can't believe it. It's, it seems too good to be true. Now I want you to know this. Their belief on this continuum, it will be made full. It will. They, Jesus is getting ready to open the scriptures with them, and he's going to open their eyes. They're going to see him for who he fully and really is, but that's not until the next section. They will worship him full of belief and hope when he ascends into heaven with great joy. That, that's the end of the chapter. Right now, these disciples, these eyewitnesses, they're in process, just like us. That's why I love them. They're just like us. See, the question really is, how do they, how do we, move from in process to for sure? How do we make that transition? How do they begin to to move from fearful and doubting and disbelieving and troubled, because I can sure understand that, to the kind of for sure Christians that then go and turn the world upside down? Because of what they believe. How does that happen? Here's how I would say it coming out of our text. That kind of belief is only found in the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. I'll say it this way. That kind of belief, for sure kind of belief, it only becomes reality when we see with spiritual eyes, when we see with the whole context of God's word that these disciples didn't have when we see the hands and feet of Jesus for what they really are. When they were startled and frightened and doubting, when when they were there, what did Jesus show them? What did he invite them to touch? His hands and feet. Why? Because they are his distinguishing feature. What do they represent? His life, his death, 
and his resurrection. They reflect the whole gospel. His hands and feet are a picture of the whole gospel message. In fact, one author I read this week said it this way, the marks on his feet bear witness to the cross on which he died. But his hands and feet also belong to the same resurrected body that came out of the empty tomb. It's both in. It's the whole gospel. His hands and feet are who he is. His hands and feet are what he's done. Thomas was the only disciple that wasn't there that night. In, in, uh, just a few days later, Thomas is engaged with these other disciples who had seen this and experienced this, and they're recounting the event, and Thomas says, I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe it until I see Jesus' hands and feet, until I put my fingers in the imprints of the nails. I, I, I won't believe it till then. Eight days later, disciples are gathered again. This time, Thomas is with them. Jesus, whoosh, shows up. Here's Jesus. Who says, Thomas. Come over here for a second. That's what he said. I'm going to show you something. Look at my hands and my feet. And take your fingers and put them in the nail holes. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Thomas believes. And then you know what Jesus says? This is what he says exactly. He says this. Blessed are those who did not see with their physical eyes, but who still see and believe. That's us. See, the belief, the for sure kind, it always comes back to the hands and feet of Jesus. His hands and feet, they're victory over sin and death. His hands and feet, they are the penalty satisfied for sin. His hands and feet, they're our hope. They're our future. His hands and feet, they unlock disbelief. His hands and feet, they unlock the scriptures. Everything in here points in some way, shape, or fashion to his hands and feet. His hands and feet are life. His hands and feet are joy. His hands and feet are peace. When we see him again, do you know what he's going to show us? His hands and feet. Whatever it was that hindered the disciples, whatever it is that hinders us, Whatever worry, trouble, fear, or doubt, they dissolve at the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And get this. When we move from in process to for sure in our own hearts, get this. We become what? His hands and feet to the world. That's what we become. We are the very expression of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ to all who haven't yet seen and believed. That's what we are, his hands and feet. And that's exactly what we'll see of the disciples in the coming passages. So what? I want you to take just a minute right now and just consider personally the significance of the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in your own life you take just a couple of moments to reflect on that. You might think about it this way. What do you believe about his hands and feet? Where are you in process? What's the Spirit of God inviting you to know for sure? Take just a minute and ask the Spirit of God to show you, would you?
there is an insert in your program this morning that is similar to the one that we gave you back when we began our study of the Gospel of Luke in January 2011. And um, we have this in there for you because we want you to take some time over the next three weeks as we finish our study of Luke to, to write down some things that you now know for sure. It might require a little bit of study. You might need to reflect back over some of the passages. I would encourage you to read the Gospel of Luke again over these next three weeks and, and just write down one or two things that you now know for sure. What, what are you taking with you from our study of the Gospel of Luke? So just take that, stick it in your Bible. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. And then finally, I'm going to invite you to stand, and I want to send us out this way just with one last short thought from this passage. When Jesus shows up to the disciples and they're in all states of disarray, all places of disbelief, he, he says these words to them first. He says, peace be to you. That's what he says first. And it just made me think, you know, the disciples were fearing for their lives. They were hopeless. It, it's about as bad as it could be for them in this moment. It makes me think about our own circumstances. No matter what our circumstances, what our situation, what we're facing, what we're feeling, Jesus Christ, he always brings peace. He is, in fact, the prince of peace. And when you and I know peace with God, then we know peace, his peace, in every place in our lives. In fact, Jesus says it this way in John chapter 14, verse 27. And I'll send this out with this. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but only as I can give. So I'll say it in Jesus' words, peace be to you. Until next week.